Public data may be public, but it's not always so accessible. It's really nice when you can request data simply by making an API call, but that's actually the exception rather than the rule. When you think about all the data that is available in our world, especially when you're talking about data that is managed by the government. Oil and gas drilling data falls into this category of data that's hard to get. It's publicly available, technically, but it might be at some government bureaucrat's office on his desktop somewhere in a PDF file. Osberg is a company that is building a tool for analyzing oil and gas data. Osberg is a rich dashboard for knowledge workers to query and visualize the data. It's sort of like a Bloomberg terminal for oil and gas knowledge workers. Evan Anderson is the CEO of Osberg, and he joins me to discuss building a business where the data is hard to acquire and building a product for oil and gas knowledge workers. Interesting episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. Evan Anderson, you're the CEO of Osberg. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. So you're building a tool for analyzing oil and gas data, and this is a rich dashboard that knowledge workers can take advantage of. Who are some of the knowledge worker type of roles in the workplace that can take advantage of a dashboard for oil and gas data? Yeah, so we serve a diverse group of customers, mostly on the upstream side of the oil and gas industry, but also on the midstream side of the oil and gas industry. And within the upstream and midstream sectors, we work with anybody from business development, commercial development, A&D, new ventures, land, engineering, geology, exploration, and then there's a long tail of customers in the service sector, whether it be attorneys, brokers, mineral buyers. So a lot of different groups within the upstream midstream sector. Mm -hmm. There is the analogy of the Bloomberg terminal. A Bloomberg terminal is this thing that you see when you go to trading floors or you go to anybody who is in finance and they're working for a high salary because this Bloomberg terminal is pretty expensive, but it's essentially a dashboard into all of the financial data and financial news that you could ever want. And so Osberg is kind of like that for oil and gas data. Explain that analogy a little more. Yeah, so I would say that we use, you know, Bloomberg and Capital IQ as analogs to our business for folks that are just not familiar with oil and gas. Because fintech, I feel like, has has been around a lot longer than energy tech. And what we're trying to communicate there is that, you know, the fintech industry figured out a long time ago that there's incredible value from public information, but that public information, you know, there's this beautiful paradox about public data. You know, it's supposed to be freely available. And you would think that it's pretty easy to access and to aggregate and to extract information from that public data. But you know, it's actually very difficult. It's very difficult. It takes a lot of domain expertise to know where this information is. It takes a considerable logistical effort to aggregate this information. It takes a, a technical effort to extract quality data from public information. You're dealing with a lot of public documents that are unstructured. And in many cases in the oil and gas industry, you know, this information can come in the form of microfiche in still paper format. Mm -hmm. And so... 
you know, the fintech industry figured out a long time ago that if you could create super high quality data sets and then build B2B SaaS products in order to enable folks to interact with that data and, and generate insight from that information that there was, there's value there. And so that's the extent, you know, that we are, you know, analogous to a Bloomberg or Capital IQ. We're not doing, we can certainly sell to hedge funds or anybody that's buying or selling equities. We've got some unique data to help there but we're not a trading platform and the bulk of our users are not, you know, in the commodity space, making trades, utilizing our data. When you're talking about getting data that is in unstructured documents, you're talking about things like these PDFs where it's some old document that's been scanned in that talks about the location of a well somewhere or some agreement and so if you want to pull that kind of information into a dashboard and present it in a well-formed experience, you've kind of got two options. You can either go to these different companies that are producing the data in a unstructured fashion and request that they do it in a more structured fashion, which is probably intractable, or you can take it in-house and maybe apply NLP and image recognition and stuff to be able to parse text and information out of these documents that are not well structured. Is there a third option or are, did you pick one of those two and leverage it? Yeah. So first of all, you're lucky if you can find something in a PDF. And when we're talking about unstructured, I mean, none of these, none of these instruments are the bulk of what we work with. There are no forms. These are agreements. These are, you know, paragraphs, you know, multi five to 10 to 40 page, you know, documents where attorneys do reuse some language, but for the most part, you know, they're all very unique. DPI quality is an issue if you do find documents that are, that are imaged. And yeah, your options are, you know, I think the incumbents in the space, the problem that they were trying to solve in the late 80s and early 90s is to just make this information available online. And so the way that they were architected and built were, you know, kind of like library catalog systems. If you know the name of the book, if you know the author, or keyword, then you can locate the book and you can read the book. And if you look at legal tech and fintech, we've moved way beyond that. We're much more interested in the contents within the book and, and we're, we're much more interested in, in doing time series analysis and all the extracted data or you know, looking at you know, patterns within the information and combining information to create new information and derivatives thereof. We do use information extraction technology, so we'll use image recognition, NLP, and then there are a lot of instruments that, you know, where you have handwriting that, you know, unfortunately, it's pretty difficult to use technology, and so we also use a lot of humans. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. Of course. You know, I, in my last question, I was talking about the images like documents and, uh, well, that sort of information where it's a legal document or something, but you've obviously also got all of this data that's streaming off of wells because they have sensors set up and these oil and gas companies are collecting tons and tons of data about how their wells work. Can you get plugged into those data streams or are those companies like Exxon or whoever is drilling? I don't know the drilling industry very well, but are they willing to share those data sets with you? Yeah, good question. So, so this kind of hardware-software combination in, in the oil field is really intriguing. There are a lot of companies working on that problem. What you're talking about are, are what we call SCADA systems. 
And there are a lot of really interesting problems in that space, for sure. That's not really a space that we play in. I but see. We, we appreciate the work that a lot of technology companies are doing there. They're, they're lowering their, the cost of SCADA so that more and more operators can get real-time information in the field. I mean, this is what people are talking about when they talk about the digital oil field. What we love about people you know, solving problems in that space is that they're helping teach companies how to utilize data. I mean, mm-hmm. the oil and gas industry is still really trying to figure out how to utilize a lot of the information that they have. You know, for the first time in the last five years, we're seeing big EMP companies hire predictive analytic teams. You know, we see companies like Palantir entering the space. Those are all really good signals for us because what those companies are primarily dealing with is proprietary data, data that these companies own, and it tends to be a lot cleaner Mm -hmm. and easier to work with. That's right. We're tackling a much different problem you know, that, all that information tells you a lot about the assets that you own. It tells yeah. you a lot about the assets that you, you know, operate and manage. What we're working to do is tell you a lot about the assets you don't own, about your competitors. And that's, a, by definition, a much larger problem and a much more difficult problem. Right. And it's something where you could build a moat around that problem, build a pretty good business, and then when these predictive analytics companies or even Exxon starts to become a data company where they're selling their data, you could buy that data, you could repurpose it into your own dashboard and people could cross-reference it with the kind of stuff that you've got, that you've got a moat around. So it's good positioning. And just to give people an idea of like what this kind of data is and what you can do with it, I did read a blog post on the Osberg blog about well spacing. I think this is a good example of a study that somebody could do with your data. Explain what well spacing is and how a study of that can yield business value. Yeah, so well spacing started because I don't know if if spindle top means anything to you, but there was a time in Texas and even in Oklahoma where wells were drilled literally, you know, right next to each other over and over and over again. And what we learned was that that wasn't the most efficient way to drill and produce wells. You were losing the energy, the reservoir pressure quickly, you know, that's required to push oil and gas up the well bore. And so the concept of well spacing was created in order to protect against, you know, waste and drainage and protect correlative rights. And it exists in every state, but it exists in a, it's executed differently in each state in terms of how they regulate well spacing. And historically, this, is a, this has been a regulatory document that has not been part of the workflow of somebody doing exploration. This isn't a document that has been used historically to signal you know, an interesting event. But every well needs to be spaced and every you know, formation or every depth needs to be spaced before you can drill and produce here in Oklahoma. So it's upstream from filing an intent and drilling and producing a well. And there are a lot of different ways that spacing data can be utilized in order to tip off activity. So we looked at spacings back in 2007 here in Oklahoma. There was a company, Devon Energy, that filed seven spacings in one day in a formation that hadn't really been spaced on 640 acres before. It was a Six Sigma event. And it was the beginning of the Cana Woodford, which is you know, a very big natural gas play here in Oklahoma. 
that's never really been done before. Space and data hadn't really been utilized in that way. You know, oftentimes you want to see what has been spaced, but also what has not been spaced. Oftentimes formations were spaced in different price environments. And then whatever ideas somebody had at the time were abandoned when pricing changed. Mm. And so you can go back and look at historical spaces to get a, to get a sense for what some explorationists were thinking. There's a number of different ways in which you could use spacing data. This kind of plays into what differentiates us from a lot of folks in the market, which is, you know, the well development life cycle starts in the county courthouses. It starts with all the public records. You know, it starts in the same place where divorce decrees are filed, where probates are filed. That's where you go in order to determine who owns mineral rights, because those are the executive rights that you need to lease in order to have the right to go in and drill and explore and produce oil and gas. So, you know, that's, that's a very interesting space because a lot of the information is not digitized. The title industry is a huge industry in terms of figuring out who owns what and what encumbrances exist on their assets. And a lot of that information is unstructured in, in paper format. And we play in that space a little bit. And then at the other end of the well development life cycle is the exploration process, actually permitting a well, getting a permit from the state to being able to drill a well completing a well, producing it, optimizing production, looking at frac data to optimize your completion techniques, things like that. But what sits in between those two bookends, the courthouse and drilling and producing wells is the regulatory environment. And in Oklahoma, there's about 95 different regulatory documents in Texas or something on the scale of 200. And there's a lot of really interesting information within those regulatory documents that can be used mm. for a number of different things, depending on who you are and what you're interested in. This is all public information? It's public information, but it's not necessarily online. It's not going to be oh. it's not going to be in necessarily in the TIFF or PDF. It may, you know, it might be in an old EBCDIC database if it is in a database. You know, a lot of it's gonna be in microfiche. If it is online, you're not gonna be able to go into Google and search for it. You're gonna to have to know where to look. And many times we have to make requests. And there are multiple regulatory agencies. You know, here in Oklahoma we have the Tax Commission, the Water Resources Board. You have the Oklahoma Corporation Commission. You have a lot of different governing agencies that have really interesting data sets. And so it takes a bit of domain expertise to know where to go just to find the information. And then you have the challenge of aggregating it. And then once you've aggregated it, then you have the technical challenge of extracting information out of that data and creating super high quality data sets and then great B2B SaaS products so that people can actually interact with this data in a meaningful way. to mention the fact that it's not just banging on their doors once and getting a collection of documents. You actually have to do this on an ongoing basis, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it were easy as writing a web crawler, I mean, my life would be much, much happier. But then you wouldn't have a defensible business. <laughs> exactly. No, this, yeah, we definitely have to roll up our sleeves and be creative about how we go and aggregate this data. And it's a big challenge, but it's a lot of fun. Have you been able to set up relationships like at the very worst where it's like, can you guys just like FTPS this file every week, you know, once a week? Do you have those kind of relationships? Yeah, but they're rare. You know, mm. we, we love to see, you know, state regulatory agencies that offer that. I believe, you know, even the state of Louisiana has an API into some of their data, which is amazing. But that's very rare. You know, here in Oklahoma, for example, you know, one of the big issues that recently came to light was does horizontal drilling and fracking create earthquakes? We had a huge surge in earthquakes here. 
and it really unnerved the public. You know, the, the Corporation Commission is the governing entity that, that has a lot of the data around saltwater disposal wells. That was believed to be the issue is that with horizontal drilling and fracking, there's a lot of wastewater and that wastewater has to be disposed and it's disposed in these formations deep, you know, tens of thousands of feet below the surface. It's pumped into those formations and it creates pressure. And if you're near a fault, you might conceivably create more earthquakes. And so we needed to figure out where these saltwater disposal wells and where were they relative to faults. And when the public went to the Corporation Commission to get this information, I mean, they have six, seven different databases. The data is not, you know, all one place. It's not clean. It's very difficult for them to answer those questions because, the, you know, unfortunately they haven't had the resources to, to really have the infrastructure in place to collect this information. You know, I'd be surprised if it was all even digitized. And so they can't, they have a difficult time answering, you know, those kind of basic questions and important policy decisions are made around, you know, that data. In in the process of scaling this business, you know, I think about if you're trying to get all these different data sources to send you documents, because it sounds like a lot of this data is just in documents that, like you said, is unstructured. It's a PDF or it's a scanned document. Is the process of scaling that just like hiring a bunch of, I don't know what you would call them, account managers or something where the every week or every day these account managers are emailing a set of people and saying, hey, please send us these documents. We need these documents so we can integrate them into Osberg. Is that what the process is like? Because I'm just trying to understand how you get the data in a timely fashion when some new court document has been uploaded and you want to quickly get the pipeline of that document sent to you. You want to scan it into Osberg. You want to apply NLP or image recognition or just have somebody read it and manually enter the data, whatever it is, you need to do that in a timely fashion. I'm just wondering how you do that in a scalable way. Yeah. So I'll just say that you have to be really smart about it. I mean, we, we went and tackled 72 counties of public information in Texas in a period of four months and, and acquired over probably a hundred million records. And, you know, it was an incredible feat. I was really really proud of our team, but you've got to be really smart about it. And yes, the, you know, the problem doesn't end after that historical corpus has been built. You have the ongoing maintenance of keeping it updated. And so you have to be smart about that too. We spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that. And it's not a linear problem. So it's not a problem that you just throw more bodies at. You do have to be strategic about it or else it can, you know, it, it is expensive, but it can be insanely expensive if you're not smart about it. Do you put into the product, hey, this data may not be up to date? Because I can imagine, like, so this is, I'm sure this is like way better than whatever these oil and gas knowledge workers had before. I mean, they had nothing, they had no Bloomberg terminal like experience, but still, there's going to be times where, okay, we haven't gotten this document, like, this well spacing data may not be up to date. Do you tell people that in the interface, or do you just kind of like, you know, give them the best that you can and just present that as, you know, I, I don't know, what do you do for that? Yeah, we definitely communicate because each document type is going to have a different timeline associated with it. Like in, in, in many cases, we're as up to date as we can be. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, for example, production data in Oklahoma is reported through the tax commission. And if you read the statutes here in Oklahoma, the tax commission has five months to audit production data. 
So if the tax commission were running as efficiently as possible, they would be as up to date as of five months ago. And in many cases, you know, they're not as up to date as of five months ago. And the industry just understands that. So we don't really have to communicate that to the market. But there are cases where we're bringing data sets to market that haven't been historically brought to market. And we do need to educate the market as to, you know, how timely that information is going to be. But for, you know, in cases where, you know, the data is available, you know, every day, we get it every day. And so we're as as of up to date as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so we're as near real time as possible. Right. There are some third-party data providers, I imagine, in this space, because I know... In all of these spaces, like whether you're doing container shipping or healthcare logistics, there will be some third-party data provider that aggregates data and can sell it to you as an API. Are there some of those that you can pull data from, or, or do you want that data at all? In some cases, yes. So we're always looking to see who has data and information, and we've got kind of a business development team that kind of vets that out. And we've made some acquisitions. We've done some partnerships. Absolutely. I mean, we don't take the position that we have to build it all ourselves. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that data has really become currency. You know, what we find is that when people build data, often is the case that they're not doing a lot of analysis of the data to figure out how accurate it is or how clean it is. And so in many cases, we end up building our own data sets because there's a lot that we want to do with this data and we want it to be clean. We want to be able to statistically prove that with 98% confidence, we have less than 1% error rate. When you're acquiring or partnering with, you know, it's, it's sometimes more difficult to do that. And so, you know, our preference would be, you know, that we create all of our, our data, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, not a, it's not a requirement. We've partnered in, and we've acquired data before. You mentioned Palantir as an example of a company that does predictive analytics. They do a build-your-own-dashboard sort of experience. It's similar to Bloomberg. It's a big tool for knowledge workers. So you think about Palantir, you think about Bloomberg, maybe you think about any of the other interfaces for manipulating and working with data at a high level. How do those products inspire the interface that you built for Osberg? And I guess more generally, how do you think about the user interface that you want to present to the oil and gas knowledge worker? What kinds of widgets and features are you trying to provide to such a diverse group of people who are looking at oil and gas data? Yeah, good question. So you can start with search. You know, we would like to bring NLP search across our data sets to the industry. You know, that's something that we're really excited about and that we haven't seen in the space. Then you can talk about mapping. This industry, maps are integral to this industry. You know, contextualizing the information and visualizing it on a map. You walk into any oil and gas company or midstream company and you're going to see maps on the wall. Mm. And they're static, but the industry loves its static maps. And so mapping is important. And, you know, some of the things that you can do with maps today in layer you know, visualization on top of that, whether you're using D3 or whatever, you know, is, is pretty fascinating and cool. And then in, in, in our space, Esri's really had the foothold in, in the industry when it comes to mapping. But there's a lot of really, you know, exciting things that, that we can bring to the space. For example, one of the things that we did early on, which wasn't really prevalent at all, was animation. So time series animation. 
So being able to, to throw the data on the time bar and see a lease trend evolve over several counties over a period of you know, months, right? And, and kind of see where things are trending. That was revolutionary for the time. You know, you go into FinTech and, and those types of things have existed for a decade, but you go into oil and gas and you're needing to pass out Dramamine. You know, if you look at some of the BI tools, Spotfire's really got a foothold in the space when it comes hmm. to, to analytics. The industry has loves Spotfire. And I don't know what that is. Tableau, are you familiar with Tableau? Sure. So it's like Tableau for oil and gas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they do a lot more than oil and gas, but they've really done well in oil and gas. And so those types of, of BI tools you see in the space, you know, those things all you know, resonate with us. But for us, you know, we are perfectly happy pumping our data into a Spotfire dashboard. We have plans to build, to continue to build visualization tools like mm. that, but we don't need to own the desktop, so to speak. That's yeah. not necessarily something that we feel like is, is part of our, our mission and our charge. Well, it's smart because you're picking your battles and you're looking at your core competency and saying, okay, we're really good at gathering this data that's difficult to parse, difficult to collect. And if you could just be the back end of data, that's really defensible as opposed to being the back end of data plus a bunch of shiny interfaces. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, like We have a great product. I mean, we've got you know, a large number of users that love our interface and application. And for certain companies, it's everything that they need. But we, you know, are, you know, we don't feel like we absolutely have to own the desktop. And it, it's a combination of our ability, you know, it's, it's a combination of our vision and domain expertise, knowing what information is out there and having a vision for how it can be leveraged to create value for these organizations. There's a lot of creativity that, that goes into that. And then it's the ideas around what you can actually do with this data and how it can be applied and then productizing and commercializing that. That's, I think, more of an edge for us than just the application side. So you try to surface ideas for how that data can be applied? Well, absolutely. We have to. So, so we do three things as a business. We aggregate and create you know, unique and impactful data sets. We build B2B SaaS products to enable folks to interact with that data. And then the third part of our business is we've brought client success management to the industry, which is less about training and more about education. So we really get to know the, the goals and strategies of our customers and introduce them to data sets that maybe weren't part of their workflows prior to working with us to help them achieve those goals and strategies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, you know, when there are 200 and something regulatory documents in the oil and gas industry in Texas, a geologist may not be aware of a particular regulatory document that they could use to signal that, you know, there's been a big find in, in some part of Texas. How do you have your engineering teams organized? Well, we have DevOps, front end, back end. Those are kind of the three main groups. And we have functional leads that report up to a director of engineering. And what are the responsibilities of those different teams? What projects are they focused on right now? Yeah, so... On the data side, you're going to see, you know, anything. And I'm not technical, so I'll, I'll probably. <laughs> you could punt completely if you want. Yeah, no, I, I can make an attempt at least. So, you know, something akin to an ETL on the back end that, you know, I, I, the challenge there is we have huge volumes of information that we're trying to get into our product at, at the same time. Mm. And so 
I know a lot of thought went into the architecture behind, you know, being able to get our, our data into these pipes and, and into the product, you know, so that we're not limited in the volume or the number of data sets that, that need to stream into the product. I know that they're also working on the information extraction piece. So using machine learning, you know, some of the technologies in order to, to build content models, to, to read these unstructured documents, extract the information out. And then a lot of that data has got to go to a QA and QC team that is doing the sampling to ensure the accuracy of the data, the back and forth process there. We've got kind of a logistics team that is kind of bringing in the data from a number of different sources out there in, in the market and, you know, making sure that we're getting all the records back and making sure we're not getting duplicates and things like that. And then on the application side, you know, what I guess I call front-end developers, but they don't particularly like because they do server-side development too, but, you know, application developers that are building our application out. So we've got a, a web-based desktop application that, has you know visualization tools mapping search mining and you know we continue to build out that application Mm. and then you've got all the the devops related work i mostly interview people who are building software companies either in san francisco or new york or seattle that's probably 95% of the interviews that I do. And many of the people who listen to the show, they request like, hey, can you tell us how engineering works outside of those places? What are the pros and cons of building a technology company in Oklahoma? Yeah, great question. So I recruited engineers from all over the country. So for me, I wanted... Is it it's a remote team? We do have a remote team, but we also have a lot of folks that we have two offices, Oklahoma City and New Orleans. And okay. we, we got a lot of folks in both. These are, you know, on the back end, these are Scala developers, all functional programmers. And that's, you know, our team loves Scala, but it makes it challenging because there are not a lot of Scala developers in the tall grass prairie. And so, you know, we find someone that's that's certainly capable of picking up the language, but the onboarding is difficult, right? So, you know, for us, time and money are two scarce resources. And so getting somebody in and getting them up to speed and onboarding them, you know, getting them to, to commit code when maybe they were a Java developer, but not a Scala developer, you know, it takes time. And so that's definitely challenging, but, you know, like I said, we have a remote team. And so we've got, you know, folks all over the country there. There's a lot of great engineering talent, you know, in the tall grass prairie, it's difficult to find. We've been really working to build a community you know, there's not much of an engineering community in this part of the country. And, and a lot of the developers are .NET developers. You know, some of them have experience working in open source, but it's tough to find talent. I mean, it's tough to find talent everywhere. Of course. You know, that's, that's a problem that you hear, you know, coast to coast. But, you know, we work with, you know, some cutting edge technologies and we're tackling, you know, very difficult and challenging problems in an industry that represents 6 to 7% of our GDP that spends 200 billion a year in CapEx and the space is barbaric. It's the wild west. And so to be able to bring things like AI to that space, you know, is incredibly exciting. And, you know, I'm all for renewables and would love to see companies like Exxon lead the charge and, and the change there. But the reality is, is that we're going to be a carbon based economy for the next 10, 20 years. Mm. And so we've got some big problems that need to be solved in the interim. And it creates tremendous opportunities for businesses like ours. 
And the, the positioning is really good because there are a lot of these oil and gas companies that are going through the innovator's dilemma on a number of fronts. I mean, if you're Exxon right now, you're trying to figure out how to shift your strategy to renewables. And at the same time, you've got all these questions about IoT. You know, How much should we invest in putting sensor data around our oil wells? Should we completely reposition the company to do that? You know, trying to do that kind of thing, like digital transformation on the oil and gas part of your business while also disrupting the oil and gas part of your business, they're entirely preoccupied. And I just make this point to say that everybody in the oil and gas business is trying to do that while you can kind of be over here and just be like, we're just doing the data stuff and you're very focused on that. Just like great positioning in terms of the business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I truly believe that, you know, the consumer space is, is fascinating. It's, it's great to see new products built there. Uh, but when you look at places like the tall grass prairie, I mean, there's a lot of heavy industry problems, technology problems. You know, there's, there's a lot of interesting problems in agriculture. There's a lot of interesting problems in manufacturing. There's a lot of interesting problems in aerospace, even defense still. Mm-hmm. And those are the industries that states like Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Nebraska know well. And you don't see a lot. I mean, when I look at the number of ad tech companies for a, <laughs> for a $30 billion market, and then I look at the number of energy tech companies for a $30 billion market, yeah. right? I mean, it's night and day. You'll have thousands of ad tech companies and you won't have a hundred energy tech companies. Mm. And so, you know, I love bringing technology to heavy industry and, and oil and gas in particular. Yeah. Talking about the renewables and the bigger picture, actually, I just want to jump to a kind of more ambitious question. So obviously, a lot of discussion going on right now in our country about what are these displaced coal miners going to do? Or what are these displaced manufacturing people going to do? And you have just mentioned that there's all of this low-hanging fruit to be done in terms of agricultural technology. My impression is that the technological acumen is kind of scarce because you need technical people to be able to implement the systems that will update a farm or update a fracking well with the newest and greatest technology. And I'd love to hear your perspective on where the market frictions are between the available labor and the jobs that are available for that available labor? Yeah. So you're asking me, I think what I'm hearing is, are you asking how do you match the expertise with the technology expertise? I'm sorry. I, I worded that question really poorly, but I'm trying to ask about the question of jobs in America people who are trained for manual labor jobs who are being displaced by technology and maybe they need to retrain or maybe they have the skills already. I'm just trying to get your perspective on when you talk about heavy industry, because since you spend a lot of time in the, in the intersection of heavy industry and technology, what is the outlook for a coal miner who has been displaced or a factory worker who has been displaced how hard is it to retrain or are there jobs that are available right now? Like, I'm just trying to understand the difference between the reality and the narratives that I hear in the news. Right. So 
I would say this. Oftentimes, we see, particularly in the oil and gas industry, especially folks on the service side of the business, they're reluctant to embrace technology because they do fear that it's going to, in some way, shape, or form, replace some aspect or, or replace their, you know, some aspect of their job or replace their job entirely. And when I talk to folks in the service industry, I try to encourage them to embrace technology because the one thing that I've noticed is that you, know, you often talk about, you, know, you often hear about the generational crew shift change in the oil and gas industry. In the 80s, there was a bust and an enormous of professionals left the oil and gas industry. But what left with the industry wasn't just you know, a generation, it was also a bunch of technology, right? That's why the opportunities exist in the oil and gas industry today is because you know, the folks that stayed with 30, 40 years experience, they're really not all that familiar with what's possible with technology. They don't, they don't understand you know, what, what NLP or AI is. They are still trying to wrap their head around data analytics and, and what's possible. But they have some qualitative experience that computers just can't replace. They have this qualitative experience that you need in order to understand, you know, what products need to be built, what data sets need to be built. And so, you know, when I talk to somebody in the industry that's concerned about technology, maybe, you know, taking their job, if they would just embrace technology and become a thought leader around, you know, how technology should be built, they'd be creating opportunities for themselves. Because I don't think a lot of folks in the technology space truly understand those problems because they do lack that domain expertise. And you can be a great product manager and empathetic as possible and, and, and ask wonderful questions. But without that domain expertise, it's, you know, at least what I see in our space, it's absolutely critical. You know, I, I, you know, I've seen a number of really smart, amazing technology companies, you know, household names that have gone into the oil and gas industry and really struggled because mm. they you know, they may be exceptional at data science. They may be exceptional at building products, but they have a very difficult time, you know, understanding the, the domain, understanding the problems in the space. And so I really can't answer your question in the sense that I know how difficult it is to, you know, to go find an, another job if you are displaced by technology. But I would say that if that's a possibility, I would embrace technology and try to find a way that I could utilize my qualitative experience to build better technology. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a generational thing? Because the people who grew up with smartphones and laptops, getting that fluency with technology early on, that comfort with technology early on, that seems like a generational difference rather than some sort of skill set difference. Yeah, I do. I do. But I just can't stress the importance of, you know, when I think about building technology, I think about augmenting experience. I think about a human experience. I think about kind of, you know, technology in my mind is supposed to be like the Iron Man suit. It's supposed to take, you know, your wealth of knowledge and everything that you've seen in your 30 year career. And it's supposed to enable you to apply that mm. and be a force multiplier. Right. So you shouldn't need some proficiency in typing or using specific interfaces. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's all about, you know, human computer interaction, right? And good, you know, UI, UX. And so I never want to be in a position where I'm just selling to the millennials, you know, or to, you know, to, to the folks that grew up 
with technology because I would be missing out on all that wealth of experience for folks that have seen things for you know, 30 years that, mm -hmm. that I, you know, and that's, that's what I'm trying to tap into. That's what I'm trying to, you know, that's the value I'm trying to maximize. Mm, got it. Okay. To close off, you mentioned a 10 to 20 year time horizon to getting to renewables. What does that roadmap look like for us as a society? I think it gets down to battery technology. I mean, we've got to find a way to, you know, seasonal storage, I think is what's really going to change the landscape. You know, transportation is a start for sure. And I think that that's in our, you know, immediate future. But I think we've got to find a way to, to tackle the seasonal storage problem. And I know that there are a lot of really smart people working on that problem. What about nuclear? I don't really have an opinion on it. Okay. Any other interesting predictions about where the global energy market's going? I think, I mean, listen, I would love for us to live in a world that is less pollutive, that is more thoughtful about how we impact our environment. You know, whether it's wind farms that are interfering with bird migratory patterns, whether it's oil and gas wells that are just a blight on the landscape. I would love a world where solar, you know, what have you is fueling the economy. But the reality is, is that we're a long ways away from that, yep. you know, and I'm focused on making the upstream industry more efficient because it's what we've got right now. It's the best thing that we've got, you know, natural okay. gas, natural gas after oil. So great. All right, Evan. Well, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily, and thanks to Tom McCabe for connecting us. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you.